start turning to Genesis chapter 1. We're just going to start at the beginning and read the whole thing today. Just, just, no, we're not. You looked really excited, though. <laughs> we were going to be here for a long time, though. No. So, we're going to be, okay, and so, it's probably just because for some reason Ellie's been on a Lilo and Stitch kick for the last, like, few days, but I was just thinking about this, like, like, family's a big deal thing. It's a big deal thing in the Bible. We're going to talk about it. Um, but if, if you've watched Lilo and Stitch, they, keep going, they always go back to this same idea of ohana. That's like the word for family. And I love that word for ohana because it's also the name of my favorite restaurant at Disney. And it just, I'm a little bit hungry. So that, uh, just, 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 just to admit, I'm going to think about this sermon a lot, but I'm also going to think about food because it's just where I am in this moment. Um, but no, I mean, all the stories that we love to tell, all the, the films that you like to watch or the, the books that we tend to read, at some level, always connect us with this idea of family. Um, I'm not gonna make I'm not gonna make that reference. Pick it. I can't think of another movie right now. Fine. So you've got these like soon to be nine movies about one family and how they existed throughout the galaxy for a, from a long time ago, far far away, right? You know, like we tell stories through the idea of family and how people connect to family or how people have been hurt by family or how. Pe- when you read the whole Old Testament, the whole Old Testament is a story of how God worked through one family to ultimately bring about redemption for the world, starting, starting with Adam and Eve, and, and then eventually starting again with Abraham as he, as he covenanted with a brand new people to say, you are going to be the family through which I'm going to bring salvation to the world. All of the Bible is, is a story of family, and this is... This is not surprising because one of God's primary plans for our being His image bearers on earth was to take place through the family. Let's look back at the very beginning when God was creating man. This is Genesis 1. I'm going to start in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. From the very beginning, from creation, when God said, I want to create somebody who can be my representative in this creation. I want to create somebody who is like us, not is us. We are not God, but we represent him. We are bearing his image. We are like him in that he has given us special dominion over the rest of creation. And the first thing that he said, the first marching orders that he gave to man was to be fruitful and multiply. Have a family. And through your family, you can exercise this this dominion that I'm calling you to. You can exercise this, this, this watchful care over the rest of my creation. So God's God's plan, God's mission for his creation, for us 
has always in part been to be accomplished through the idea of family. Think through when he was creating, creating man. In chapter 2, verse 18, he had finished creating Adam and it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. We were not meant to go through this in isolation. We were not meant to play out God's plan. It wasn't ever meant to just be Adam and that's it. He wanted us to be, and we talked about this when we talked about the church some last week, he desired that we would be in community because, because God himself exists in community. Like, like God and community cannot be separated. And so his creation, if we were going to best represent him, would happen through community. And as that works out, it works out that we have community built in through family. So after he created Eve, Genesis 2.24, just to kind of finish off the thought, says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the point that I want to address today, because we kind of put this series together based off of the what we believe statements that we kind of have on our website, like just our statement of faith stuff, just the things we, but we don't have anything on there that specifically addresses the family. Uh, And we were thinking through this a month ago, and I was like, this is something that is missing. Just a statement of what we believe about the family, because because the idea of the family in our culture today is constantly shifting, (laughs) is constantly being tweaked, is constantly being adjusted. And I think that's because family is, is so central to God's purpose throughout history, it's not surprising to me that, it, that the family has been under constant attack, honestly, since sin entered the world, right? A changing of, a, 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 an, a, an attempt to change the paradigm of what God established at the creation. When he established his intent for us, when he gave us our marching orders to have dominion over theirs, to be fruitful and to multiply. And we see that played out in a lot of ways throughout our culture today. And we're going to talk about a few of those. Um, so whether it's, for, whether it's through removing like the stigma of premarital sex, or whether it's divorce, homosexuality, the whole family is constantly under bombardment. And I don't want this to turn into like a preachy, I'm just going to call out all the sins that I see in the world kind of thing. I want this to point us toward the hope that is in the family of God. And I want this to be something that that we establish what it is that we believe so that we can confidently say, no, no, this is what Scripture says. We believe what the Bible says. And we have a standard by which we live our lives so that we have truth to speak into society. And we need to, as the church, be willing to make definitive statements when we see areas of our culture being pushed away from the standard that God established. So let me, we'll just start with this, with this plainly. I'm going to make a couple of statements about um, some specific areas of our culture that are pushing hard to get farther and farther away from the standard that God set. And then in the end, we're going to come back around and look at what the positive and hopeful solution to a lot of this is. So first... We believe that all forms of homosexuality are sin. 
not unlike drunkenness, lying, disobeying your parents. It is a sin that that some will have a stronger temptation for, though to be tempted does not mean to sin. Jesus himself was tempted and yet did not sin. And the reason that I think it's so important that we as a church firmly establish our belief in this is because many branches of the church have softened their view on this out of a sense of inclusion or a sense of wanting to be more accepting or appear more loving or, or gain the favor of the greater culture around them to be seen in a more positive light. But it's dangerous because all sin leads to death. Um, this is Romans 1. Verse 24 through 27, it says, Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul is clearly saying this is not something that is new just for our generation or the generation before us. Perversions of God's standard of what it is that he established at the beginning that we would become families, be fruitful and multiply have been being misused, mistaken, changed. Because because we desire to do something that seems more pleasing to us than to our Creator, right? He says they worshipped the creature rather than the Creator. They worshipped something about creation more than they worshipped the standard that God had established. And this is not something that is new to us. This is something that has been in existence since, since the Bible was being written. But Paul is very clear that this thing is an evil thing that is happening. This is a sinful thing that is happening. And that, that God has given them, God gave them over to their error and God gave them over to their sin. And he goes on through the rest of Romans to continue to build the case that, that, that like that sin, all sin ultimately leads to death and leads to separation from God. And this, this is no different. I don't want to make it sound like I'm singling out this as the only sin. I'm about to list a couple of more. It's okay. If that one doesn't hit you, I might find something for you here in a second. So I don't want this to be a, we as the church are, we, we hate people that do this thing, or we disassociate ourselves from people that do these things. No, we, we firmly say there is a standard that scripture has given us, that this is sin. But this, like every other sin, can, be, can have a hopeful ending and that can be found in the gospel. And yes, yes, people are living in sin. There are people in this room who are living in sin. It's just not that sin. And that's, that's the same sort of mindset that we should have when we go into interactions with people who are, who are struggling with this particular sin. We don't, we don't separate ourselves and say, I can't have anything to do with you. Because you're doing this thing that is so openly offensive to God because whatever it is that's going on in our lives privately is equally offensive to God. So so if we're going to talk about this, we also have to talk about what our attitude has to be towards people who are in sin. 
It cannot be this, this negative because you are, you're attacking the idea of family that God has established. Therefore, I don't like you. I'm not going to be around you. I'm just going to say that you're gross and disgusting and I want to have nothing to do with you. If we say that, then we're not representing Jesus very well at all. Right? How many times did we see Jesus going right up to the people that were the most offensive to the culture around him? Having dinner with the sinners and tax collectors, right? The people that everybody who was, who was churchy and religious would say, no, you shouldn't go be with them. Don't you know who they are? Don't you know what they do? And he said, you don't, you don't come to a doctor unless you're sick. Like, like, I'm here for these people. I came for the people that know they need help, the people that are trapped in this thing. And that's where our hearts should be. It shouldn't be oh, we see this one sin. Oh, that's gross. I can't have anything to do with you. We should see this sin and say, oh, I have hope for you that can be found in Jesus. So, homosexuality. Secondly, we believe that divorce is something to be avoided at all cost. These are going to go up fast. We believe that when Matthew 19.6 says, So there are no longer two but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, that he really does view husbands and wives as one. And when he follows it up in verse 8, and he says, He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. He reveals that his intent has always been that marriage was a forever thing. We read it in, in Genesis. It's not good that man should be alone. So he joined them together. He said, you're one. The two shall become one flesh. And God views marriage relationships in that way. The diminishing importance of the presence of divorce in our culture is, has, has slowly crept up to where now the idea of, well, we can get married. If it doesn't work out, we'll just get divorced, and that's fine. We'll move on, and I'll get married to somebody else, and then I'll probably get divorced from... Like, the, the reality is, in our culture, we don't view marriage as such an important thing, so we don't view divorce as such an important thing. It's just not a big deal. It's just a thing that happens. You fall in love, you fall out of love, you move on, you kind of start over again, and maybe one of these will eventually stick. But what Jesus says here, when, when, and, and people will say, but, but look, Jesus, in that same passage, you skipped all the verses where, where Jesus said, yeah, the law does allow for people to get divorced. Or, or what, about, what about when Paul says, if you're married to an unbeliever and they desire to leave, you let them go. What about those verses where you get those caveats where it's like, this is an area where you can be allowed to be divorced. And I'm not getting into a big, deep theological discussion on that. Maybe some of these subjects would be cool for a little bit of a deeper dive in your community groups this week. But, but from the beginning, it was not so. That's what Jesus says. Yes, Moses gave you a reason because you are sinful people who are going to want out. So he gave you a couple of ways that would allow you to be remarried. Because that's really what those caveats were about. It was about divorce and remarriage. Who can get married again? But he said, from the beginning, from the time that God established 
A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. From the time that God established it, that's the standard. You guys messed this up, and God knew that you messed this up, so Moses gave you a couple of ways to maybe not mess it up as bad, but it's still not what God would desire. And so as a church, we believe that, that God views marriage as a permanent thing and that divorce is to be avoided at all costs. And you may say, but what about this or this or this? I would say that whatever reasons you have, even if they're in here, God would still desire, ultimately, that you remain married and work through those things and use that as a testimony to the way that Christ can redeem even the worst of situations. Perhaps. Just saying. But what if I've already been divorced and I've gotten remarried and now I realize that I shouldn't have gotten divorced in the first place? Should I divorce my new spouse and go get remarried to my old spouse? No. Don't sin again just to fix a previous sin. Like rest in the redemption of Jesus. Rest in the fact that Jesus can now redeem the situation that you are in and move forward seeking to glorify him with everything in your life realizing the sin that was in your past so that you can maybe say, these are areas where I was sinful in the past. These are areas where I was selfish in the past. And these are areas where God has now grown me. Perhaps. So don't sin to fix sin. Like I said, there, there are a lot of things in both of those two big subjects um, that you could go way deeper into discussing. You could go break down the passages in Mark and Matthew on divorce and Corinthians and that. Uh, you, could, you could do a deeper, deeper study into all of this. And, and maybe some of that can be a good discussion fodder for you in your community groups this week. I don't know. Um, those are conversations that tend to lead to lots of what-if questions and situational like, hey, what about this situation? How do we deal with this? And I think those are good things for us to work through in community groups because, because that's like really good discussion. Like, let's talk about why it is maybe even that we're asking these questions. Why is it that we struggle to accept some of these pieces? Um, so why, why does it matter? And, and, and I'm going to stop my list of things that, ways that the culture is, is attacking the family with those two, because I think those are two of the biggest deals in the way that they affect the idea of the family, especially in our culture right now. Why does it matter that we establish what we believe? Why does it matter that we, we, in a sense, fight for the idea of the family that God established? Here's one. Because the way that we're married shares the gospel. I, I read part of this a couple of weeks ago, or last week. I've slept a few times since then. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, 
just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So I used these in the what the picture of marriage was representing last week when I was talking about the church and being one body. But I want to look at it from a marriage perspective this week. The way we are married, if we are, if we are the kind of husbands that represent Jesus well, and we are the kind of wives that represent the church well, we are demonstrating what it looks like to be a people who are saved and joined together into a new family. Right? When we talk about this idea, the two shall become one, when we, when we talk about that being God's desire, if we actually, as we become husband and wife, if we, if we are married and we represent the idea of oneness well, we're basically sharing the gospel. We're basically sharing what it is like to be in Christ. If husbands are, are showering their families with the word of God, if they're showering their wives with the word of God, trying to say, this is the truth of who Jesus is, and I want you to understand this, and I want you to love this like I do. The ways that we live together, the ways that, I go back to my example, but what about if a spouse does this, this evil thing that even the Bible says they could get divorced over? Well, if they don't, and they stay together, is that not the same thing as, well, look at all the awful things that we've done, and yet, yet Christ saves us, and we become united to him. Isn't that, the exact, isn't that the exact same story? Isn't that the exact same truth that we're telling through the way that we're living out our lives? The way that we live as a family is one of the strongest ways that we can share the gospel as a unit. Second, the way we parent shares the gospel. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is tough sometimes. That, that don't provoke your children to anger one is sometimes difficult. Because sometimes my children, my children, my children, my child, I can't say it singular now, provokes me to anger. And I'm not right to get angry. Huh? <laughs> this is just confession time for me. Don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction. It's the same, it's the same command for husbands and wives. Wash them with the water of the word, right? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's important that, that, we, that we parent our children well as a way of showing how God, who is our Father, loves and parents us. And we... Are all, we, are all, we have all been somebody's child at some point. <laughs> the way we honor our parents is equally important. 
This is important for those of us, for, for the kids back there to hear, and I'm sure that point's going to get made to them this morning. But I mean, I don't, I don't think I have this one up here. 2 Timothy 3 puts obeying your parents in the same list with a whole lot. Oh, I do have it up there. For people to be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. This is all part of a longer list of sins. It's like you think through all these sins, and, and right there, amidst, amidst lovers of money, arrogant, abusive, is disobedient to your parents. We tend to be kind of, it's, it's easy to be kind of dismissive. I say, oh, they're kids. Kids are kids. Kids act like kids. Can't, I mean, they'll eventually get it, right? No. It's, it's important that, that we as parents are raising up our children in an understanding that the way they honor their parents represents the way we as children of God honor our Heavenly Father. This is a big deal. And this is why it's important that we be filled with the truth of Scripture so that we can raise our children under the truth of the Gospel. Yes, that even means that we should be held accountable by the church if we're not doing a good job of raising our kids. If we're not doing a good job of bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is an area for accountability within the church, just like every other area that we could fail in. The way we're married shares the gospel. The way we parent shares the gospel. But more than anything, I think there's something a little bit bigger at stake. This is Mark 3, 31 through 35. Jesus is out teaching. It says, And his mother and his brothers came, standing outside. They sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at the, about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So here's the cool thing about, about the idea of family. Here's the big idea about the idea of parenting or being married or being a child. Even if you don't have a family, you do. If you're in Christ, we are your family. Like I, we talked last week about the church being a body. We talked about it being like, well, I need my left hand. If my left hand is gone, I notice that my left hand is missing and I miss my left hand. And we talked about it from a, I mean, that comes kind of like a utility sense. Like we need you. You're an important part. You're just one other cog in the machine. We, like that sort of thing. But we don't think of this idea of Whoever does the will of God, he's my brother and sister and mother. We have a family here. That doesn't mean we always get along. <laughs> like, families don't always get along. Doesn't mean we're always, we're always the best at loving each other. Doesn't mean we're always the best brother or sister or mother or child or whatever. But even if you're sitting here thinking, I don't have a family. I don't, I don't have sisters or parents or kids. I don't have that. You do. If you're in Christ, you've been added to the family of God. Even if you don't have, have parents, you have a heavenly father. Even if you have a horrible relationship with your dad, you have a dad who's better than your dad. Sorry. 
You have a heavenly father who knows how to pursue and love his children. Are you single? And you're sitting here thinking, man, he's talking a whole lot about married things and I'm not that. He may not call you to be married, but know that you are being glorified as the bride of Christ. And he is your hope and he is your joy. Not a husband or a wife. You're not defined by that. You're defined by you are the bride of Christ. And there's going to be a big party when we get to meet Jesus face to face at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Go ahead and read Romans 8. This is 14 through 17. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's a big idea. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's the joy. That's the hope. That, that, that God knows how to make a family. Even if, even if our culture's idea of family is constantly being shifted, even if different little pieces of it are slowly being chipped away at in our culture, God knows what a family is, and God knows how to build a family, and he's been building families since he built all of this. And he's adding us to his family. He's adopting us as his sons and daughters, and we receive all the same benefits. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Like everything that you think, I wonder how, I wonder what all God's going to give Jesus for all of, all of the, all the work that he did and all of the things that he's done. That's amazing. God's going to shower him with all of this. And he says, you are fellow heirs. Like he doesn't say you're fellow heirs like Christ. Like you get some of that. He says, you're fellow heirs with Christ, adopted as sons and daughters of God, added to the family of God. What Jesus gets to eat for supper, we get to eat for supper with him. Sorry, I'm still hungry. So for for our memory verse this week, we're going to do those first two verses that I read out of Romans 8. I'm going to read them again. They'll be up here. If you want to read them out loud with me, we can. Y'all want to do that? Let's do that. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8, 14 and 15. So we're going to work on those two verses this week. If you get those down and you're like, all right, now I'm bored, you can go add 16 and 17 if you want. They kind of build on that idea. But I think it would be amazing if, as a church, as we're studying this week, as we're, as we're reading over these verses, that we become so... I just love the idea of us becoming so overwhelmed that, that we're like, like, God's dad now. And, he can, and if you have a bad, a bad taste in your mouth from maybe the way you were raised or from your relationship with your dad or, from, or with your, 
your, your family or whoever it was that you were raised with. Maybe, maybe you don't have that idea of a good father that you can, that you can look to. We have one in our God. And that's all made available to us because, because Jesus took all of the, the pain. He, he, he accepted all that. Like, like He knows what it feels like to be, to be, in a sense, rejected by His Father. He knows that feeling because when He was on the cross, right? And he looks and he says, God, why have you forsaken me? Like, as he took on all that sin and God looked away from him, the worst thing that he felt was not the pain of the nails in his hands, but the idea that he was being forsaken by his father. So even if you have felt that same pain, so has Jesus. So when it says he has felt everything that we have felt, he has been tempted in every way and yet without sin, that even includes feeling the pain of rejection of broken relationship with family. I mean, think about who it was that killed him. It was the same people, the same family that God had covenanted with so many years before when it started with Abraham and he said, through you I'm going to bring about redemption. You are my people. This is the family that I am building. That same group of people are the ones who were offended by the Son of God's message and had him killed. Jesus knows what it feels like to experience broken family relationships. But he felt all of those things so that he might make a way that we could be adopted into a better family, a perfect family, a family whose Father is God. And that's an amazing thought. So let's pray.